Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Tristan Harris, the former CEO of Apture, the former design ethicist at Google and the current co-founder and president of the Centre for Humane Technology. Tristan Harris, thank you for joining me. My pleasure to be here. You are the founder and the president of the Center for Humane Technology. It's a nonprofit organization focused on the ethics of consumer technology. So a good place to begin is probably how do we create ethical social media and digital sites that we're all out there using? Well, the answer is going to be complex because I think the real challenge that we, we go often back to uh E.O. Wilson, who's the father of the field of sociobiology at, at Harvard, who said the fundamental real problem of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions and instincts, we have medieval institutions, and we have accelerating godlike technology. And that accelerating godlike technology is in the form of accelerating psychological influence, we've got exponential warfare, we've got exponential intelligence, we have the power of gods. But if we don't have the wisdom of gods, while you have the power of God, think of like, uh, you, know, you can't be Zeus and, and, not, and then sort of not understand the impact that you're having. Because by accident, you'll just kind of bump your elbow and scorch half of earth with lightning bolts. And that's kind of where we are with social media, where the level of psychological influence social media is having on society is far greater than the self-awareness and control systems that govern make the, the mechanisms of how social media impacts society. Facebook has created a Frankenstein that they cannot actually you know, hit this switch and suddenly, boom, it's ethical, right? Because the entire DNA of the system that they've built is that you can post something and it will go viral based on how incendiary and extreme and you know it is. I mean, take the example most recently, just a couple of days ago, the Israeli general who said that... Um, there's aliens who have contacted Earth and that Trump and the Israeli um, you know, governments have been in on it this whole time. And you know, first of all, I want to say, you know, we, to do clean epistemology, there's possibly a chance that that is true. Uh, but do you imagine that you know, a traditional news organizer would be doing gatekeeping? They would say, okay, well, what is the evidence for these claims and how would we know? And, but when you have a bottom-up social media environment, people win by asserting the most incendiary and extreme reality that they can, which is why conspiracy theorists are winning in the attention economy. It's why hate is winning. It's why division and polarization is winning. For each word of negative moral emotional language that you add to a tweet in one study, it increased the, re the retweet rate by 17%. In other words, negative emotions uh, work better, spread faster, and hang around longer than positive emotions and things that unify us. And we're seeing the consequences of that. You know, here in the United States, uh, we have divided we, we've divided the national psyche against itself. Social media has. 
because we are now, it's very clear that we're watching two separate movies of reality. Now, more than 70% of Republicans say that the election wasn't free and fair and that Trump rightly won the election. And you have obviously people on the Democratic side who um, believe that Biden rightfully won the election and all the cases of fraud have been, you know, one after another dismissed. And it's not that, you know, these two people see the same reality. It's that they're actually seeing completely different infinitely scrolling feeds that give you overwhelming evidence in one case that here's more election fraud, here's more tampering, here's more ballots, here's more people saying that they were, you know, there was not honest polling or observation of the polling poll workers. And the other side, you see infinite evidence of each of those claims being dismissed. So it's not like they're seeing the same information. Another good example of that is, um, you know, if you actually, it's, it's led to inaccurate perceptions of each other. So for example, uh, there's a really great recent study uh, I think of this almost like national optometry that we've been we've been given division-sided glasses that that actually highlight and give us a, a warped view of each other. So, for example, in this study, Republicans estimate that 32% of Democrats are LGBTQ, when in reality it's only six percent. But because the attention economy has rewarded that extreme view and it makes Republicans scared, that's what is shown and makes people think that all Democrats are are LGBTQ. Uh, while meanwhile, Democrats estimate that 38% of Republicans earn over $250,000 a year and are rich uh, because that's why they like those tax cuts. But the reality is that only 2% of Republicans make over 2% as uh, over $250,000 a year. Two other examples are that 80% of Trump voters believe that Black Lives Matter's protests were mostly violent, whereas only 19% of Biden voters believe that the protests were violent. And so is it the case that those two groups are seeing the exact same news feed with the exact same information and reaching different conclusions? Or is it they're actually seeing completely different information? And what we have to see is that the business model of social media, to get back to your original question of how do we make ethical and humane social media, we cannot have a business model that's dependent on monetizing our behavior and predictability because that will always reward giving each of us our own individual micro-reality. Every time you flick your finger, imagine Facebook had a newsfeed where every time you flick your finger, it showed you something that challenged and expanded your view of reality. Let's call it the challenge feed instead of the newsfeed. And so in the challenge feed, every time you flick your finger, it like blows your mind and it shows you a more expansive view that disagrees with you. So it just it confronts you, confronts you, confronts you. Versus another newsfeed called the you're right feed. <laughs> and every time you flip your finger, you get more evidence that you're right, the other side is wrong, and you should feel more righteous. Which of those two feeds are gonna be better at holding your attention? And so in this invisible way that no one intended, these systems have become Frankensteins that have now, we're about 10 years into this massive mind warping process. And that's what I really want people to get is, it's not just that there's these, these occasional bits of fake news, and if we only brought more whack-a-mole sticks out and we whacked more of the fake news stories, we would suddenly arrive at a perfect utopia. It's that ethical and humane social media is going to require changing business models from, from micro and hyper-personalizing our information into these narrower and narrower micro-realities. Micro and to do that, we have to collectively see that this has happened to us, which is why I'm so excited about you know, the film The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which has now been seen by more than 100 million people in 190 countries and in 30 languages, which I think for the first time is creating common ground about the breakdown of our common ground. We now have a shared place from which to understand why the world looks like it's gone so crazy over the last five years.
Do you think part of the reason that social media has managed to become this Frankenstein monster, as you describe, because the people that are in positions of power, you see the politicians, you see the people who are supposed to be looking at this, often don't actually understand what they're addressing. And we've seen this in congressional hearings. Do you think that one way that we could really start to address this is if politicians instead perhaps even the Biden administration started to have a department or czars, etc., you know, experts in this field, individuals like yourself, people who have been there, understand it truly, to go out and explain to young people, to explain to those affected, to reach out to these individuals that are using these technologies and actually give them the information and the education that we need because we've just been handed these tools without any training about, without any warning. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's enormous opportunity in a new Biden administration that um, I think will genuinely take on these problems in a way that a Trump administration would would not have. Um, uh, let's be honest. Um, you know, Trump was one of the largest bene beneficiaries of the attention economy um, by saying outrageous things and asserting things every day and having them go viral and dominating the attentional airwaves. So why would he want to change, you know, social media when that's been his primary tool for for victory? Um, I, I do think there's an enormous opportunity. In fact, um, uh, you know, it's been actually part of multiple presidential platforms. Andrew Yang, when he was running for president, said he would create a department of the attention economy. Actually, said he would. He asked. He wanted me to run uh, such a future department. But if we go into the the meat of it, um, I think that we need to see this as the issue that undergirds our capacity to work on all other issues. This is the issue beneath other issues. Because let's say you care about racial injustice. Well, for us to make progress on that, we have to agree on what the reality is of racial injustice. We have to actually agree on the same facts. We have to agree on what happened to George Floyd. We have to agree on uh, who won the election. We, if we cannot agree on reality, in democracies, we'll just fall into dysfunction. Um, and so whether we care about racism or we care, care about inequality, whether we care about climate change, we have to see the same reality. And so our, our sort of message to the future administration is that this is an issue on par with economic recovery after COVID. I, I, need to I think we need to think of this as almost as social recovery. How do we recover our social fabric from the mass 10 years long psychological experiment that we're now, you know, like a hypnotist snapping our fingers and waking up from? Uh, and that's what I think, I think the social dilemma has made so many people, especially in the US and UK and some Western democracies, aware of it for the first time. I think people actually were aware of it before, but it's sort of affirming what people have felt uh, for a long time. Now, what would that look like? I think we need a full comprehensive government approach. I think like you said, you could have a, uh, in the same way that John Kerry has been brought in as a climate czar. I think we could have a social trust uh, or office of civic renewal czar who actually says, yes, we, we need to do, like you said, public education about the mind warping effects that have taken place. Now, an open question is whether this would be better to do through a future administration or better to do externally, because one of the beautiful things so far about how I think our work and the film The Social Dilemma has been perceived is as a nonpartisan issue. It's not partisan. In fact, it's transpartisan because it's not really about whether one side wants it one way or the other side wants it the other way. It's that this is a system that's causing us to hate each other and making it harder to agree. And I think everyone can see that. The second reason it's transpartisan is because it affects our children in really disastrous ways. And everyone is seeing that. I spoke to uh, a very um, famous uh, school in Los Angeles, California last night by, by Zoom. 
And it was heartbreaking to see just how hard it is for kids who are especially in COVID times are at home and having to rely on social media to communicate with their friends and how warping and, and manipulative and addictive that it is and how bad they feel using it. So I think this is the issue beneath other issues. And I think that it deserves kind of full attention. Uh, and I think the question is, what does that full court press look like? You know, you could also imagine Jill Biden, um, uh, first lady, uh, future first lady, um, since she is a community college professor, taking this on at a public health issue level and saying this is an issue that's affecting our students, affecting future achievement, affecting future wage earning potential. And there's a precedent for the United States acting in such a way Back in the 1970s and 80s, when we were worried about lead poisoning, uh, we proved that actually lead dropped the IQ of children by four points for every, I think it was 10 micrograms per deciliter or something like that of, uh, of our environment. And so if it took the, you know, if you think of it, the threshold as being four, four IQ points to say we should ban lead, well, social media drops our IQ points by definitely more than four, four points. And moreover, if you, extract, if you extrapolate to say that IQ isn't about intelligence, it's about your capacity to solve problems. And so if we're, we're, we're ruining our capacity to solve problems and you extrapolate up to a societal IQ, what is not just the individual's problem-solving capacity, but what is the societal problem-solving capacity? Well, that's brought to zero because of social media. Because if our brain is divided against itself and we can't even see a common reality or have a shared understanding, then our societal capacity is brought to zero. So I think those were the precedents that took us to regulate uh, lead. And I think we can say that, you know, social media is embedded into our society much like that. You mentioned the word regulate there. And I think that ties into something that is a conversation that's really emerged in recent years, but particularly in light of some of the conversation that's come out of people seeing the social dilemma, which is that film made clear that laws and regulations are needed but talk of those is often shut down over concerns that firstly these companies are multinational so it requires a global approach because one government acts and they'll just move their base to another country to avoid those laws i mean companies do it with taxes they could easily do it with other sorts of regulation and the second one is the fear that any regulation would risk infringing on free speech how do you address those hurdles that clearly need to be overcome to get these over the line in, in any Congress? Yeah, well, free speech is used as a political weapon to polarize people against the idea of regulating social media. Because as soon as I frame it in free speech, that's just like a trump card for the conversation and it just shuts down or it immediately polarizes. And it's really the wrong framework because it's not about who can say what. It's about do we have a system that causes our speech to divide us constantly. So you can imagine different ways of organizing a city. Use, use the metaphor of urban planning. I can organize a city in such a way that the streets literally always run into each other so it maximizes car crashes. <laughs> and that's kind of the social media we have now. We, we've designed it without building codes, safety standards, or even urban planners. In fact, we have the opposite incentives. It's almost like they make more money the more car crashes that they create because that's where the attention gets generated. So car crash, boom, you know, those people disagree, they get angry, you know, Boom, and then they make more money every single time. They just, just like um, the National Football League in the United States, you know, they, the unfortunate reality is you make more money the more concussions that NFL players have because the business model and the, the nature of the game is to smash people's heads together. 
So if you think about it, I think what we need to do is fundamentally change and regulate the business model. Because if you, you know, we, we can regulate things like, hey, they should have more whack-a-mole sticks or for more content moderation, and they're not hiring enough content moderators and especially niche languages, countries like Ethiopia, countries like Myanmar, because one of the issues, you know, I focus on these issues in a global perspective at the Center for Humane Technology, where we see that, you know, Facebook isn't just managing the US election or Brexit, it manages 80 elections per year. So this is the global infrastructure upon which all elections are being run, and we need them to be more safe. So uh, you, one framework that we can use, though, is uh, the frameworks from global finance. I think finance is an interesting way to think about this, because you can think of this in terms of layers of systemic risk. You know, we don't allow, because of the financial crisis, banks to be over leveraged. How far over their skis can they be? Can you lend out, you know, $1,000 for every $1 you have on board? Well, Facebook is creating a system. You can think of it like the degree in which it, to which it is a Frankenstein is the degree to which it doesn't know what it's doing, what the system is doing. And when we know that there's a preponderance of harms from shortening of attention spans to more polarization to more hate speech, and they don't have a capacity to rein that in, they need to be like bringing themselves back from being over their skis to being directly on top of their own legs. So how can they create a social media that doesn't create unaccountable harm but of, of scales that are unaccountable, but instead creates more accountable forms of harm. What that might mean is limiting how viral things can be. So it's not limiting speech, it's limiting virality across the board because the levels of virality that they have, it's like for every one thing they post, it goes to thousands of people before we know what happened. As we say in the social dilemma, the study from MIT showing that fake news spreads six times faster than true news. So if, the, if fake things spread six times faster than true things, and we know that there's a huge channel of fake things getting spread faster than Facebook can ever correct it, that's like the equivalent of carbon externalities. They're polluting the social commons, the information commons, to degrees that are far greater than, uh, than they have a capacity to account for. So how do we rein them virality in, which is exactly, by the way, what they've done successfully to some degree in WhatsApp in India, where it used to be that any message could get shared to 200 other people and it can get shared to it, you know, 200 times or something. And now they, they lowered that to only something like three or five people. So you're kind of limiting, like if I cough or sneeze, how many people can I infect is the kind of virality rate. And you want to limit that down. Um, and so I think that's what we have to ask is what is a safe form of social media that's compatible with democracy, taking into account the timelines that we have for all the problems that we face, including climate change. When it comes to accountability, we've seen that Republicans in recent years have suggested re-examining Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which currently protects social media companies from liability regarding third-party content on their platforms. Do you see any merit in revisiting Section 230 and looking at that as a way of essentially forcing social media companies to take this content more seriously because they are then in a way responsible for what's on their platforms. I think we certainly need to look at Section 230. I'm not uh, an expert on it. And I say that because it's being, it's, it's kind of one of these impossible things where it's, I think it's only 26 words long or something like that. There's a famous book called I think, The 26 Words That Define the Internet. Um, and it, it's, it essentially gives them full immunity from legal liability, no matter what is posted. Obviously, that model has not been working, especially in a world in which that law was conceived before there was active recommendation systems. It's not that YouTube has a video 
of crazy conspiracy theory content or hate speech or you know self-harm videos or suicide videos and it's not taking those videos down is that youtube is actively recommending those videos and so that law was created before the era of recommendation systems where platforms like youtube or facebook or TikTok are calculating what's the perfect thing to dangle in front of your nervous system and, and create a dopamine trap and as soon as they started recommending things to people we need to say hey they're responsible for the kind of things that they're recommending and so some people call that algorithmic amplification and you could say that we need algorithmic amplification liability because once you're recommending things to greater and greater scales of people than a regular broadcaster without the responsibilities of broadcasters or publishers there's actually kind of a a weird inequality there. If we say that you have a responsibility if you're a publisher or broadcaster and you reach, let's say a million minimum people, and then suddenly Facebook or YouTube is recommending things to millions of people without that responsibility, well then why would I publish using a regular publisher or broadcaster? I would wanna to switch to these technology companies that have immunity. So I think what we have to do is at least reinforce the existing principles of the law and bring them back. Another suggestion that's been put forward as a way to rein in social media companies or to tackle the expansive nature of them that's just been announced by Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, that 48 states have launched a, a legal effort to essentially challenge Facebook as a monopoly. What do you think of the suggestion that some have posed that Facebook and Google, other companies, should be broken up? due to their size and their power. Do you think that would make any difference? The, the problem of, of these issues is so enormous that it requires many enormous actions. Changing Section 230 is an enormous action to take. Taking antitrust action is an enormous an action to take. Changing the building codes and standards for whatever viral social media platform is allowed to be is an enormous action to take. Um, and I say this because I think that antitrust has to be a part of it. The reason for that is that without it, um, one of the reasons that venture capitalists or investors don't fund alternative social media products, and I know this because of my former background as a technology entrepreneur raising money from venture capitalists, is that the only exit or outcome you can get is to be bought by a Facebook or a Google. Those are your only two options, really. And so if the only place that you can successfully compete, the only exit pathway to compete with one of these two platforms is to get bought by them, well, then we know that they're not going to realistically challenge them. So for that reason alone, we know that we need to have some kind of antitrust action, which enables more competition. And the way I would put it is to put primacy on the phrase of enabling competition as opposed to breaking them up. Because if I just say, let's break them up, then you have suddenly 20 different Facebooks or 20 different YouTubes in which you still have the same business model of monetizing and personalizing attention, rewarding incendiary content that drives up division, conspiracy theories, and hate, and all the kind of normal stuff that we're seeing now, except now you have dozens of those problems. So regardless of breaking them up, we also need to comprehensively change the fundamental ethical and norm and professional standard for what you can and can't do as a platform that becomes the public square. And the problem is that's an entire research area. It's not like there's this one obvious set of changes that magically produces a kind of information coherency for 21st century democracies. But for one minute, I'd like to also make sure we frame this competitively. The West has a challenge with China. Either we will have a future dominated by Chinese digital authoritarianism, or, or we'll currently have the, the, or the only alternative to that is a digital democratic system with social media that ends up destroying the sense-making capacity and trust of a society as an alternative. So that doesn't, the Western version of digital democracy doesn't currently compete with China. So if we're gonna have something 
that at a national security and global competitiveness level, it has to upgrade our, our ability to find harmony with each other and to agree with each other and to take action together. If you use the military theorist John Boyd's framework of you know, our, the OODA loop, our, our need to observe, orient, decide, and act. And then you go back into a loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. The OODA loop of a democracy is completely broken because we can't observe, we can't orient, we can't decide, and we can't act. And meanwhile, if you're China or if you're a digital authoritarian country, you can, even though there's all these other failure modes. So if we zoom out, instead of just focusing on these tiny laws, what we really need to do is figure out what would be a social platform that actually increases the social trust, coherence, and ability to decide and act faster than the alternative models if we want democracy to survive the 21st century. And this is a point Yuval Harari and I, from the author of Sapiens, have been harping on recently, uh, and we need, I think, much more attention to. Looking at the international issues that exist, you've previously said that social media poses a safety and security risk from countries like China and Russia, stating that, quote, there's kind of a World War Three of global information warfare that's happening right now. How can countries be acting to protect themselves digitally? The first is to realize just how unprotected we are. Um, if China or Russia tried to fly a plane into the NATO sort of zone, right, they get shot down by NATO. Um, but when they try to fly an information plane, not into your physical infrastructure, but into your digital cultural infrastructure, instead of being shot down by NATO, they're met by Facebook and Google's algorithms that say, yes, exactly which zip code in the UK would you like me to target to steer your next election? With no protections whatsoever. Unless enough people make noise and Facebook hires a few security and integrity engineers to try to protect those elections. But as I said earlier, you know, they're protecting or trying to manage more than 80 elections per year in countries where they don't even understand the language. In fact, Facebook just a week ago disbanded their civic integrity team. So countries like Ethiopia and Myanmar and Turkey and places that are more at risk actually have much more, much little, I mean, and basically no protections. So this is an incredible national security issue. I don't think that there's a clear answer where you know it's very obvious uh, because I think there's a public-private negotiation that has to happen. You know, should MI6 or MI5? Uh, I forgot the which which one is which. Um, you know, should the Defense Ministry of of Britain have a direct co uh, collaborative line with these social media technology companies? And if they're U.S.-based companies, how does that work? But the same answer, the same question is is apparent for how should the Department of Defense and the Pentagon and the CIA relate to Facebook? when they have national security interests that are actually dominated there. You know, Facebook has become a kind of global infrastructure for the world without having a global defense department or global state department for the world, managing various interests. And one thing I should add to that is it means that it puts primacy on whichever governments are currently in power because Facebook's number one goal is to not get regulated. That's its number one goal. This is very important. Mark Zuckerberg has on his bedside table the book, um, the Master Switch by Tim Wu, which is essentially a history of how um, the telecommunications companies like AT&T avoided regulation. And that is the kind of Bible for how they manage themselves, which means that they're going to be friendly to all the existing governments around the world, including authoritarian governments, and they will never try to change them. Uh, and so suddenly you're in a situation where Facebook is only going to reinforce the existing power structures and deepen them and which is why I think you're seeing a rise of authoritarianism and bullying around the world, because those are the kinds of behaviors that win in social media land, and you won't be um, pushed back against by the technology companies. You've been called the, quote, closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. 
And when people listen to what you have to say here and when they read about other things that you've talked about in the past, they might think that if there were more people like you in Silicon Valley, these problems wouldn't exist. And when you worked for Google, you attempted to address some of these issues. Why do you think there aren't more people in Silicon Valley with your outlook? Or if there are, why aren't they their voices the loudest? Why are they getting suppressed? Well, there's, there's multiple things here. Um, one is what we've said is uh, we don't want to be the moral conscience for Silicon Valley. We want that moral conscience, or it's almost like a brain, you know, that's missing a part of consciousness. We want that part of that consciousness to be everywhere in our society, in every corporation. It shouldn't be something that external accountability organizations have to do. And I, I want to also say there's many good people who I know who are working on the insides of some of these companies who are the consciousness of those companies. And that's our goal is to grow and empower them. And I think films like The Social Dilemma are accelerating and empowering some of their actions because it means that the things that they've been yelling and fighting for uh, for a long time are finally getting some prioritization. In some cases, recently, as I mentioned, if the civic integrity team at Facebook, which is essentially making sure that the most at-risk countries do not have protections anymore because that team was disbanded, this is uh, a move in the wrong direction. And so, uh, you know, it's very complex. I, I, I do think that we need, uh, as I said at the very beginning, if we're kind of closing this out, that if, you know, the problem of humanity is we have the power of gods without the wisdom, love, and prudence of gods, you know, you have to have matching conscious awareness to the level of godlike powers that you have. So when I hit buy on Amazon and I enact a global supply chain that dumps a bunch of CO2 through the air because it sends something through eight different layers of the supply chain and mines minerals from conflict zones in Africa and dumps carbon across the ocean when it arrives in the shipping containers, I'm an individual acting with godlike power and creating godlike uh, consequences for the planet that are finite. And if I, as an individual hitting that buy button on Amazon, can't see that, that I am a participant in the unconscious economy, meaning I am contributing to the, I have godlike powers, but I'm not wielding the godlike consciousness. And I think what this is overall about is creating a movement where we as a species and as a planet have to have the, the level of consciousness that the powers that we are now enacting on a daily basis require us to, to, to hold. So that's kind of what I most hope. And I, I think that the film, The Social Dilemma is sort of sparking and catalyzing more of that change but obviously it's just the beginning, but I will say for anyone who feels depressed by this conversation that I've never been more hopeful with just how urgent these issues now feel to so many people. And there's more activation, more energy. And as you mentioned, the antitrust case with Facebook, just, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but just recently, uh, that, that I think there's a lot of opportunity to, uh, to, to seize now that, now that things are out there. Finally, where can people go to find out more information about you, the work that you're doing, and the Center for Humane Technology. Yeah, well, I really recommend people check out our podcast called Your Undivided Attention, where we really go deep. If you're interested and saw the social dilemma and like to go deeper, we interview many of the experts, including many more. Uh, it's actually surged into the top 10 of podcasts for technology on Apple Podcasts since the launch of the film. Um, I also recommend people join the movement for humane technology. We are really working to mobilize how we design technology, how we use technology, and how we regulate technology. Um, and it's really much bigger than that because it's really about a cultural movement for how do we as a species live in an era where technology has kind of dominated some of our weaknesses. And that's kind of what this movement, what this culture that we're creating is really about. Um, because all of us are in that boat together. It's kind of like, uh, I think Tim Ferriss, when I did that interview, uh, said, we're all John Connor now, you know, re rebelling against the Terminators. 
Uh, so that's kind of the, the place I would send people. And I really recommend people stay in touch and, uh, you know, add their name to the list and, and uh, keep appraised of updates. Tristan Harris, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. That was Tristan Harris, the former CEO of Apture, the former design ethicist at Google, and the current co-founder and president of the Center for Humane Technology. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Tristan Harris, the Center for Humane Technology at humanetech underscore and humanetech.com, and the Your Undivided Attention podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Or recommend this podcast by submitting a view online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.